Hey, Crack fans. Before we get to today's show, I want to let all of you listeners know about the revolutionary work being done by our friends over at Swing Vision. Now, all of us as tennis players are constantly searching for that piece of information that's going to give us that one, two, three percent edge whenever we step onto the court. We want to know, am I hitting my forehand with enough depth? Am I accurately placing my backhands? Am I employing patterns on the court that are putting me in an optimum position to experience success? Thankfully, all of those questions can now be answered via the app produced by our friends at Swing Vision. Folks, it's extraordinarily simple. You're going to download the app. You're going to turn that app on your phone. You're going to put your phone on the back fence, the back curtain of whatever court you're playing on. You're going to hit record. And then using artificial intelligence, Swing Vision is going to break down your performance. If you click on the link that you find in the podcast description here on today's episode, you'll go right to the Swing Vision website. And of of course, friends who use our Crack Rackets promo code CRACK20 are going to get an additional $20 discount and a free 14-day pro trial on the Swing Vision app. Again, you use that promo code CRACK20, $20 discount, as well as a free 14-day pro trial. How do you find the link? To get signed up, just go back to your podcast feed. It's in the podcast description of this episode. You go to the Swing Vision website, you set up your account, you download the app, you get rocking and rolling, get all the information one location with our friends at Swing Vision. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, July 20th. Once again, I have the immense privilege of recording this podcast in Tennis Channel Santa Monica studio where I've had the opportunity to be on the broadcast for all things happening this week on Tennis Channel's T2 station. Of course, it's another one of those weeks on the ATP and WTA tour. We have four tour level events, the most prestigious of them happening in Hamburg where we've got an ATP 500 WTA 250 happening simultaneously. Of course, the men also competing in Gestad this week, the women in Palermo for a separate 250 event. All of that action, though, is not going to be the subject of this podcast. It will be the subject of a Wednesday mini break episode, but we're going to wait until a little bit later this afternoon as I will be joined by our friend returning champion tennis points Nate Walrith to offer our thoughts on all the action all the upsets that have occurred and yes folks there have already been a plethora of upsets in just about every event we see this week we'll talk about all of those upsets talk about who stood out thus far offer our predictions for how we see the rest of the week unfolding as well again a bit later this afternoon here on this mini break podcast feed But being in this gorgeous Tennis Channel Santa Monica studio, being immersed in all things tennis from 3 a.m. to 2 p.m. each and every day, it just has me thinking about some of the big picture trends we see right now emerging and unfolding on the ATP and WTA tours. And with that thought in mind, what I wanted to do on this podcast is offer all of you listeners a few random observations of mine of things, trends that I see unfolding during this 2022 ATP and WTA season. Of course, some of those trends smack us in the face each and every week on the ATP and WTA tour. We have talked now for five years about the generational shift we've been hoping for at first now clearly see manifesting itself, maybe not necessarily at the Grand Slam events for the men, but certainly week in, week out at the Masters 1000, ATP 500, ATP 250 level. You could say the same thing equivalent on the WTA side as well, where this next generation of players, not necessarily players 21 years of age or younger, but this next generation, the you know players born 1996 or later, that group of men and women who all are either A, entering their primes, or B, are smack dab in the midst of them, 
so many of them seem to be frequently week in, week out, experiencing breakthroughs at the tour level. And again, if you've been watching the ATP WTA tour this year from afar, I think that has to be one of your biggest storylines of the season. Gone are the days of Cole Schreiber versus Manorino or Verdasco versus Lopez. It's Sebastian Baez, Francisco Sarundolo, Tomas Martin Echeverry, and on and on and on. The list goes Elena Gabriela Russa, Tamara Zedancic. It's this next wave, this next generation of ATP and WTA talent that we as tennis fans get to enjoy week in, week out. And we see these younger players now monopolizing these main draw spots, again, in these lower level, tour level events. That's a trend I want to discuss on today's podcast. Talk about some of these standout stars I have seen thus far over the past few months on the ATP and WTA Tour. Uh, I also want to offer you an update on a couple of other things that have happened significantly in the tennis world. I've yet to offer my thoughts on what was maybe the challenger match of the year, that Rome-Georgia challenger final between former U.S. Open junior champion Yibing Wu and this year's 2022 NCAA men's singles champion Ben Shelton. I finally had the opportunity to go back and watch that match. I have subsequently watched the highlights from that match as well, I have some thoughts on both E.B. Wu and Ben Shelton, who, in my opinion, if they play well, can both be top 100 players by the end of this 2022 season. So I want to offer my thoughts on that match, offer my thoughts on where each of those guys go from here. Of course, worth noting, we're going to have David Gertler on this podcast tomorrow night to discuss everything happening on the American Challenger circuit right now. We'll talk big picture takeaways from Rome. We'll talk about the action we've seen unfold this week in Indianapolis as well. And of course, all my guys, Ben Shelton, Stefan Kozlov, Alex Kovacevic, all of them are in Indianapolis this week in the one week of the year that I happen not to be. That's just a, a cruel joke from the tennis gods on us here at Crack Rackets. Nevertheless, I've been following the action from afar, and I want to break it all down. Feels like there's no better person to do that with than David Gertler. So again, he will be joining me tomorrow on the Great Shot podcast feed to talk about all of the latest developments on the ATP Challenger Tour. But again, I want to talk about the rise of the next class of clay court specialists. I want to talk and offer an update on the top 10, 15, 20, 25 clubs. Who are the players that have statistically stood out thus far in the 2022 season. I tried to allude to those players on each and every mini break podcast, but I want to lock in on them on today's episode as again, I offer a few random observations, not just the top 10, 15, 20, 25 club updates, but want to look at the points race as well. Who are some of the players we should be watching throughout the course of this back half of the 2022 season, this North American hard court stretch. And of course, the reason we're able to do all of that here day in, day out, the reason I'm able to offer a few random observations on ninth, at 9.30 a.m. Pacific time on a Wednesday here on this mini break podcast feed is because of the support we get from all of you listeners. And I'm well aware we've slacked over the past seven days here on this podcast feed. That's also why I wanted to offer a two mini break podcast Wednesday to all of you listeners to make up for some of the lost time over the past week. And again, we remain so immensely grateful to all of you Crack Rackets fans for your continued support of our efforts here at CR. It's why I got the call up to do these T2 calls this week. It's why we continue to be able to provide the coverage day in, day out that not just you, the listener, but we know tennis fans everywhere deserve. And so again, on behalf of myself, Daniel Westoff, Dalton Thieneman, a massive thank you to all of you CR fans who continue to tune in. We hope to continue to make you the best educated, most well-informed fans in the business. Also hope to provide you some entertainment along the way as well. And as always, any of you comments, criticisms, whatever it may be, feel free to go leave them in our Apple comment section. Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, at Crack Rackets. You want to tweet at me directly, I am at A.L. Gruskin. I did see one of the comments on Apple Podcasts asked for less individual soliloquies, more partnering up with people like David Kane, like Gil Gross. It's always nice to have voices to bounce thoughts off of on these podcasts. Of course, all of those people also have daily lives, daily schedules, things they need to get to. And believe me, I am constantly searching for a permanent co-host 
to this mini break podcast feed. Don't get me wrong. I love doing an hour of what I refer to as solo radio or solo podcasting here. But, you know, I like to think my jokes land a little bit better when there's someone to laugh at the punchline. I like to think that it's always nice to also have people to rein me in when I get a little bit off the deep end with some of my takes. And again, we know that's what you listeners want as well. It's always nice to hear two people disagree peacefully, cordially, but at the same time talk intellectually about the sport we all love. So again, if you have any comments, criticisms, feedback. I'll try to stop the individual soliloquies, try and get as many guests as possible on this show moving forward. But if you have anything else you'd like to add, feel free to throw it at us either in the podcast review comments or to us on social media as well. Of course, the other thing I have to give a shout out to each and every time we do this podcast is just the continuous support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. And seriously, if you need anything in your life, racket, strings, shoes, anything tennis related, there's only one place for you to turn to to find those things. And it's with our friends at Tennis Point. You go to tennis-point.com today. You can do it on your phone. You can do it on your laptop. You'll be hard-pressed to go to that website and not come away having bought something, just all the latest gear at the best prices, all available with our friends at Tennis Point. You go to tennis-point.com, use our promo code CR15. You'll also get an additional 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Again, that's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. One last quick note. You may notice I've slipped back into hotel voice, back into podcasting in a public space voice. I do apologize for the whisper tone that this podcast is going to be recorded at. But again, I am in the Tennis Channel Santa Monica studio. I don't want to disturb anyone. The worst thing in the world would be to have my door open and some producer or John Michael Gamble walks in and goes, hey, Alex, shut up. We can hear you everywhere. So again, if I slip into a whisper from time to time, I do apologize for that fact. But with that in mind, I'm going to try and keep this podcast under 30 minutes. Here are a few random observations of mine from the past seven days in the professional tennis world. Let's start at the challenger level. And I will certainly be talking about this player again later this week when David Gertler joins me on the Great Shot podcast. But man, it might just be Ebing Wu's world and we're all living in it. Ebing Wu, of course, the 2017 Junior U.S. Open champion, actually beat a near and dear friend to this podcast, Stanford All-American Axel Geller, 6-4-6-4, in that Junior Slam final. Look, the 22-year-old young Chinese man, uh, he has been on everyone's radar since he was 16, 17, 18 years old as a player to watch emerge over the course of this next decade on the ATP Tour. But unfortunately, just countless injuries seemed to slow Ebing Wu down. He was out for pretty much all of 2020, all of 2021 with a shoulder injury, with right elbow issues. And he ultimately had surgery to correct those issues. But you look for, again, Ebing Wu, who was the 2017 Junior U.S. Open champion. He wins that title at 17 years old. Between, you know, following that 2017 season, he goes 13 and 16 on in ATP tour events, ITF level events, in professional matches. There's the term I was looking for. He goes three and four in 2019. So a combined 16 and 20 on the pro circuit after winning that junior U.S. Open title. He did not play a pro tour match in 2020. In 2021, he returns to court here this season in 2022. His first event, he plays a Futures in Cancun at the start of February, loses round of 16, five all to Gage Brimer, forced to retire from that match. Ever since that moment, though, Ebing Wu has been on fire. He's now 23-4 and four overall here in 2022, has captured challenger titles in Orlando and in Rome as well, and again, has very quickly ascended the ATP Tour rankings, currently finds himself at a new career high ranking of number 233 in the world. You look for him in the points race, Ebing Wu, number 158 eight is the 22-year-old. I mean, you look at players under the age of 23 this season in the points race. Ebing Wu currently finds himself, what, 25th, top 25 amongst 23 and under players in the world. And that's in a 27-match sample size this season. He's played fewer than probably 22 
of the 24 guys in front of him on that list and watching Ebing Wu play the word that comes to mind is smooth. I mean, there is not a single weakness in the game of the 22-year-old. And if you are a listener of this podcast, I imagine many of you are also engaged or a part of tennis Twitter. You watch the Challenger streams from time to time as well. Of course, if you're watching the USTA Pro Circuit Challenger stream, you will always hear the voice of one of my mentors, Mike Cation, one of the most respected minds in tennis, someone I always turn to to talk about these players on the rise on the ATP Challenger Tour. And I think Mike Cation said it best. He called what Ebing Wu is doing elite levels of tennis. And if you know Mike at all, you know he is not a fan of hyperbole. He is not someone who will you know, over-accentuate or over-emphasize the skill set of someone just to try and gain attention. If he is calling someone's skill set elite, he sincerely means it. And go watch Ebing Wu and try and use a word other than elite to describe his game. I mean, to watch him just eviscerate might be too strong of a word. But to watch him just categorically handle everything 2022 NCAA singles champion Ben Shelton threw at him in the final in Rome, ultimately a 7-5-6-3 victory for Ebing Wu, it was the sort of stuff you see from a top 50 veteran on the ATP Tour. And again, you look for Ebing Wu in his career. He's now played a total of 113 professional matches. There's just no discernible weakness in the game of Wu, who I would say if you were, you know, if this was baseball, not that anyone's watching baseball still, and I imagine this baseball analogy will be lost on a a healthy number of you podcast listeners, but he's a five-tool prospect. He's the guy who can do just a little bit of everything. I don't want to say exceptionally well, but certainly very good. And you look for Ebing Wu, I would probably put him in the David Goffin, Tommy Paul, you know, Sun Wu Kwan model of player, where it's just, again, no discernible, glaring weakness. And, you know, for Ebing Wu, he can go down the line on the forehand and the backhand, change direction with that shot if need be. He can take the ball early on the rise. He's comfortable moving forward behind both his forehand and backhand. His transition towards that, so efficient with his footwork, with his steps. And, you know, again, his ability, his pace, his fluidity in the hour third, outer thirds of the court, his ability to absorb the first strike of a J.J. Wolf last week, of a Ben Shelton last week, of a Ulysses Blanche last week. And let's not forget, this Rome Challenger was played indoors, big servers like Shelton and, you know, J.J. Wolf in particular. And honestly, Blanche, you'd think their games would be accentuated by the indoor hard courts of Rome, but it didn't matter. Ebing Wu, and yeah, it was a slower hard court in Rome than we're seeing even this week in Indianapolis. But Wu was just able to absorb the first strike of each and every opponent that he faced. And you look for him against Ben Shelton in the final, you know, created six breakpoint chances, was only able to convert two of them, but he wasn't broken. On serve in the final, only faced one breakpoint, won 81% of his first serve points, uh, two-thirds of his second serve points, You know, I think he only had two aces in the match against Shelton as well. It's not as though he was running up a bunch of free points throughout the course of that match. It was how efficient he was with his targets. Again, comfortable playing the plus one ball inside in, inside out. Go back and watch, you know, Ebing Wu's five all service game in that first set. How smart he was with his targets, mixing in the body serve. I think it was, what, 30 all? I don't know, excuse me, 15-30 in that five-all service game, Ebing Wu electing to go with the body serve. Not anything flashy, not going for the big T ace, not going for the fantastic kick out wide, which, by the way, are both serves he has in his bag of tricks, but goes a big body into Ben Shelton, just gets the short plus one ball he was looking for, hits the ball behind Shelton to that forehand wing, was unafraid of attacking that side of the ball, and, you know, again, did a fantastic job, uh, picking his spots and just playing smart, efficient, top 100 tennis. I mean, again, I think throughout the course, and you, and by the way, you look for, uh, for Ebing Wu this season, 23 and four overall in his losses. He was up 6-1-5 all on Suichi Sekiguchi 
in one of his losses at a 25K in Dallas. He was forced to retire from that match. He was, you know, down 7-5-3 love to Matthias Borg in the second round of a challenger in May, but he was forced to retire from that match, forced to retire at 5-all in the first set against Gage Brimer. So even that 23-4, and three of his four losses involve retirement due to injury. Now, certainly that's concerning. As one asks themselves, is Yi Bing Wu going to be capable of playing the full 40-week schedule that's required to not only be a top 100 guy, but to be the sort of top 50, top 25 player that, and I don't use this word lightly, his talent certainly indicates he can be. Again, I mean, countless times. He breaks Shelton pretty early in that second set and just able to hold on to that break the rest of the way and, you know, wasn't over-reliant on attacking the Ben Shelton backhand. He was perfectly fine challenging Shelton's lefty forehand and, you know, going forehand to backhand on on that exchange as Yi Bing Wu is a righty. And, you know, he could also change direction with that backhand, go down the line, incorporate the drop shot, sneak in behind it. Look, it was a fantastic week from Ben Shelton, who I want to get to momentarily, but watching Yi Bing Wu play again, 22 years old, has been so injured over these past few seasons, but does have the pedigree. You know, again, former World Junior Slam champion, excuse me, was a top five junior in the world as well, which of course you're going to be if you're a Junior Slam champion. I'm trying to think of the comparison of someone who was injured early in their career, but when we've seen them play, they have always been talented. I mean, a guy like Zion Williams for the New Orleans Pelicans, certainly we all know if he is healthy, if he's going to be on court, he will be one of the 20 best players in the NBA, maybe better than that. Do I think Ibing Wu will be a, a, a top 20 staple on the ATP Tour? I mean, I'm not ready to say that because it's so difficult to be a top 20 player simply because of how many weeks you have to play each and every year just to maintain that ranking unless you're Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal where you're guaranteed to make quarterfinals or further at all the big events, the Masters 1000s, the Grand Slam championships, which again I'm not ready to go to for Ebing Wu. Uh, unless you're able to do that then, you know, it's pretty difficult to guarantee anyone's success on the ATP tour, but if you have not had the chance to watch the 22-year-old play again, 23 and 4 here in 2022, 3 of his four losses, he's been forced to retire due to injury. Whatever the it quality is that all of us are looking for as we try to determine who will be good and who won't on the ATP tour, again, he's got it. The depth, the pace, the variety, the shot and rally tolerance, the fluidity in and out of corners, the the first serve, which I mentioned him being a five-tool prospect, that first serve, 115, 120, can dial it up to 125, hit all of his different spots as well when need be. I was just immensely impressed by Yi Bing Wu, and even more impressive than the fact that he has multiple challenger titles this year. You look for him, did not drop a set on his way to the Rome challenger title, dropped just one set on his way to the Orlando Challenger title. And, you know, again, his only actual loss this season, I say actual with quotation marks around it, was to Jason Kubler, who beat him 6-2 and two in the Zagreb Challenger quarterfinals at the start of May. I mean, as we know, Jason Kubler has also been one of your breakout stars of the 2022 season as the 29-year-old made, what, the round of 16 at Wimbledon from Qualley's semifinals of Newport last week, has been a top 100 player all year long. There's no shame in a 6-3 and three loss to a top 100 player. Again, 40 Bingwoo who had to use his protected ranking at the start of this season just to get into events, has raced up to a new career high of number 233. And again, he's done that in 27 total matches in this 2022 season. I'm beyond impressed by the 22-year-old. And I really do think both he and Ben Shelton, I mean, Shelton's going to get a wild card into the main draw of the U.S. Open. I think both guys can win matches at the U.S. Open. And again, if they're both healthy from now until December... I do believe, here's a hot take for you, both guys will be top 100 players because, again, there's no weakness for Ebing Wu and plenty of strengths. I think he's a B-plus, if not better, in every category of his game at this point. Meanwhile, I don't think I have to 
sell Ben Shelton to all of you Cracked Rackets listeners at this point. A longtime fan of Shelton's game. We've been fortunate enough to have him, of course, on our Cracked Interviews podcast as well. The lefty, the 2022 NCAA singles champion, just has the weapons to be in the top 100. His ability to hit that lefty slice serve out wide on the ad side. Talk to any player who has faced Ben Shelton. They talk about how miserable that experience is to be stretched wide and just know that he's going to take a plus one forehand either inside out with depth, power, drive, or he's going to knife off a little short angle cross court forehand behind you and you're just screwed. Or dare I say, you're just f***ed if he connects on that ball properly. And, you know, certainly I think he is aware, much like a Stevie Johnson, much like any of these players who have the dominant plus one forehands, that opponents are going to try and pick on their backhand. You can't pick on the Ben Shelton backhand. Yeah, he gets a little slap happy with it. Sure, he certainly has times where he's impatient at any point of the match. By the way, I'm just looking at their tennis abstracts now. Ebing Wu, born October 14th, 1999. Ben Shelton, October 9th, 2002. Shout out to Octobers. I've said it from the start. If you're born in October, one of the OVOs, shout out to Drake, we're just better than the rest of the crew. But I mean, for Ben Shelton, 20 years old, it's just how routine he makes everything look. I mean, comes through qualifying, drops just one set on his way to the final. That one set coming in his first round main draw match of the tournament to Govinanda. You look for Shelton, you know, just look at the break point numbers. Isn't broken against Shinsui, uh, Shinsui Matsui in qualifying match number one. Isn't broken by Liam Draxel in qualifying match number two. Was broken once by Nanda in his three-set victory. Was not broken by Alex Rybakov. Was broken twice by Kovacevic in a straight-set win. And then, you know, you know, wasn't broken against Uchiyama in the semis and was broken twice. You know, those two breaks now being the difference between he and Ibing Wu ultimately in the final. But... You know, if you're only broken once per set, typically, doesn't matter if it's the highest levels of the ATP Tour, doesn't matter if it's the ATP Challenger or even ITF level. If you can minimize to the point where, you know, again, Shelton plays, what, seven total matches uh, throughout the course of last week. He was broken five total times. Yeah, that's going to get you to the quarterfinals, to the semifinals, to the final of any event you play. And again, whether it's the slice out wide on the ad side, the plus one forehand, he can go anywhere with his ability to drive that backhand. And it is a little flat. Uh, I would like to see that ball on a non-hard court surface. And thus far, Ben Shelton's only played hard court events uh, throughout the course of his career, excluding, excuse me, one clay court Vero Beach Futures, which he played at the end of last season. But Shelton's 24-7. and seven. In his last 52 weeks on the Pro Tour, that includes qualifying and making quarterfinals of the Champagne Challenger. That includes semifinals of the Little Rock Challenger. Now his first Challenger final here in Rome. A fascinating match for Shelton against Tim Van Reithoven. And you think for Shelton, the lefty into the one-handed backhand of Van Reithoven on the quick surfaces that are the Pearson Automotive Club in Indianapolis. Courts I know well and have played on, which they are faster indoor hard courts than you're typically accustomed to. If Ben Shelton's an underdog, go smash that number on DraftKings because, again, I think he can match the plus one of Tim Van Reithoven. Obviously, Van Reithoven served the lights out on the grass courts, and these low, you know these hard courts aren't as low-bouncing, I suppose, as those grass courts were here in Indianapolis this week, but they'll certainly amplify his serve. That said, they amplify Shelton's serve as well. And always give me that recipe. Big serving lefty into a one-handed backhand. Just tennis players everywhere know that is a recipe for success. So keep your eye on Shelton this week as he... Lo- and by the way, both he and Yiping Wu in the draws this week. Shelton going to face the two-seed Tim Van Reithoven in the round of 16. Wu going to face the top-seed Peter, Peter Goyowicz uh, in the round of 16 as well. So last week's finalist now facing the top two seeds. Uh, you just file that under things you love to see. Uh, tennis, that's that's just a tennis-centric only thing, right? That's something that only happens in tennis. But again, with all that said, those are some of the observations I wanted to offer, just how solid Yiping Wu is across the board, how just methodical he was. And look, they were on serve, one all, two all, three all, four all, five all in that first set. But you know, the moment Ben Shelton blinked, offering, I believe it was two unforced errors in that five-six 
game, Ibingu was right there to capitalize on it. And that's what top 100 players do. Now, again, Shelton being broken five times in seven matches, that's what top 100 players do as well. And I will be shocked if both of these players, I mean, Shelton may go back to college. If both of these players are healthy and playing full-time pro schedules, they should both be top 100 by the end of this season, at a minimum top 150. But, you know, again, I could see both winning a match, maybe even two matches at the U.S. Open if the draw breaks correctly. But again, those were my biggest takeaways from Rome. Now, certainly there were a few other observations, and I want to save them for when we are joined by David Gertler on Thursday on the Great Shot podcast feed. We can talk more about guys like J.J. Wolf, Alexander Kovacevic, Alexi Galarno, some of the other guys, Hattie Habib, you know, there are a lot of former college players making breakthroughs right now on the ATP Challenger Tour. I know David has been locked in on their development. I want to see how his thoughts on them have progressed as he's had the opportunity to watch them play more and more pro circuit matches. But with that said, I said I was going to keep today's episode under 30 minutes in typical Alex Gruskin fashion, as my friend Gil Gross likes to call me the fake editor-in-chief of all things happening here at Crack Rackets. That will not be the case. But you know, with that said couple of other quick observations before we wrap today's show. A, how about the rise of the ATP Challenger, and I'm putting quotation marks around this, ATP Challenger clay court specialist. Of course, in that sense, I'm referring to guys who have been dominating, whether it's the South American ATP Challenger stretch, whether it be some of the clay court events happening in Europe. Think about guys like Sebastian Baez, who won, what, five, six Challenger titles? From November 2020 to the end of the 2021 season, you think about the Sarundalo brothers. Obviously, Francisco wins his first ATP title last week. Juan Manuel won an ATP title back in 2021. Both of them have had a pronounced amount of clay court challenger success. And that clay court challenger success has propelled them into the ATP level. You think about guys like an Alex Mulchan, who has made two finals at the ATP level this season on clay after, again multiple ATP Challenger clay court titles. You think about guys like Alejandro Tabilo, who we've seen sniff around and have some big wins at the ATP level. You think about guys like a Juan Pablo Vikovic, like a Tomas Martan Echeverri, who are all at or currently hovering around their career highs. Yeah, you look right now for uh, Tomas Martin Echeverri, the 23-year-old currently at 72 in the live ATP rankings. That's a career high for him. The 25-year-old Vikovic currently at 124. That's a career high for him. You've got, you know, the Nuno Borgeses of the world, obviously. The Juan Pablo Varias's, my birthday brother, who was up a set and a break and served for the match. Had a match point against Roberto Bautista Agut today before that match was suspended due to the rain. The point I'm trying to make here is there is a new class of ATP guys who are filling out those 250s, those 500-level events. And I know I'm very ATP-centric on today's podcast. I apologize. You could apply some of this on the women's side as well, whether it be the Elena Gabriela Russes of the world, the Beatrice Haddad Mayas of the world, obviously what Jung Chin Wen has done. Uh, certainly players like Angelina Kalanina and you know the Kami Osorios, the Anna Kalinskayas, the Anastasia Potapovas of the world. These are the players you see competing week in, week out at the 250 level, at the 500 level. No longer is it, you know, again, Verdasco versus Feliciano Lopez or Adrian Manorino versus a Philip Kohlschreiber, the veterans who have dominated the past decade and who could just pencil into the first round or round of 16s of just about every 250 event we saw on the tennis calendar. Those players have either retired or they've seen themselves fall further down the rankings and have, you know, as such, they've subsequently given way to this next class of talented players. I mean, again, looking across the board, you've got someone like a Yannick Hanifman who earns a straight set win over Christian Garin. How much success has Hanifman had at the challenger level over the past 18 months, right? A couple challenger titles. He's had a couple good runs at the ATP level as well. I know Hanifman's older than some of the other guys, but you know, again, looking at this week's action in Gestad, some challenger staples who have made runs this week. You know, Elias Emer 
beneficiary of the Benoit Pair pullout, but he's into the round of 16. You've got, you know, guys like Juan Pablo Varias, as I mentioned earlier, some of the Hamburg guys, Daniel Galan, another one of those players who has had a pronounced amount of ATP Challenger success on clay, a Yuri Lechechka, who's into the quarterfinals here, Jaume Munar, who we've seen at the ATP level, but has really, you know, really began to assert himself over the past 12 months, gained confidence at the challenger level. That confidence now translating uh, to the ATP tour level. Talon Greekspoor, who's won, what, nine challenger events in the past 18 months, something crazy like that. He's number 44 in the world. Alex Mulcan, number 45 in the world. Listen to this. You know, again, three guys who we've seen dominating the ATP challenger level. Benjamin Bonzi, Talon Greekspoor, Alex Mulchan hasn't dominated quite to the extent that the other two guys, but that's your 43, 44, 45 right now in the ATP rankings. The rise of the ATP challenger, you know, guys, the, you know, we talk about it all the time, the parity between the challenger level and the ATP tour, you know, a lot of times you look at some of the draws and you may say, hey, I like this challenger draw better than I like this ATP 250 draw in any given week. I mean, go look at all those Southern South America clay court stretch draws back in February, early March of this season. You could look at, not, you know, 90% of those draws were challenger tournaments throughout the 2020, uh, end of 2020 or start of 2021 season. And now all of those guys have progressed forward. And again, there's just a new class of player. Dare I say the middle class of the top 100 players rank 25 to 85. It's just a new generation. And I actually think that's where we feel the most, pr- and, and that's going to happen inevitably because guess what? Father time, mother time, however you want to say it is undefeated, right? And a player, every player is going to eventually be done playing tennis, eventually hang up the sticks and retire. But it just feels more pronounced in this particular moment than it has over the past three, five years. And trust me, we here at Cracked Rackets would feel that because we try to track the next gen more than ever, uh, as much as anyone. Because with all due respect, I think we all know what Nadal, Djokovic, Federer victories look like at this point. It's about preparing oneself for the next generation of results we will all see. And, you know, again, I, I think these are the players who will be playing prominent roles uh, over the course of the next generation. So I uh, certainly just wanted, you know, that's one of my observations is seeing the Sarundalos, the Baezes, and all the way through to the Vikovic's. By the way, perhaps all of this is just Argentinian tennis on the rise, which is something we can discuss with David Gertler on Thursday. But that's just one of the observations I wanted to offer to all of you listeners today. With that in mind, a couple of quick things uh, before we wrap today's show. First of all, top 10, 15, 20, 25 club updates. Here are the players who rank top 25 or better in both both hold percentage and break percentage. The women's list is fascinating. And because we've talked on this podcast, tier one, tier two, tier three, tier one players, unequivocal contenders at the slams, each and every slam that they play. I think all of us right now would agree there's probably only one tier one WTA player. That's Iga Sviantek, who's an unequivocal tier one player. The debate we would have is if there are any more tier one players right now on the WTA tour, Sviantek top 10 in both hold and break percentage. She's not the only one though. The other player joining her continues to be somewhat of a statistical anomaly, although she's had a lot of successes, I suppose, in early rounds in tournaments. And when she's winning, you know, she's winning comfortably. That's Simona Halep, who is also remains top 10 in both hold and break percentage here in 2022. Simona Halep right now in the points race, currently 12th overall. That's ahead of her ranking as Simona Halep right now in the rankings currently sits at 16th overall. I think she's been a top 10 player. I think she's hovered between Tier 2 and 3. Tier 2, those players you feel like we're going to for sure see in the second week, and if they're playing their best, can absolutely be in the mix for a Grand Slam title. The difference between Tier 1 and Tier 2, Tier 1 players don't have to play their best, and they can still be in contention for the Grand Slam title. Tier 2 player, if you want to be in contention for the title, you probably do have to play your best. Tier 3 is where, you know, again... we feel like they will be extraordinarily competitive and very likely to make the second weekend if they're playing their absolute best can, you know, give those tier two, tier one players a run for their money. I think we talk about this all the time. The WTA, again, Iga, probably the only player in tier one. Who's tier two 
here's two, who's tier three. How do you delineate between those two tiers when the margins, the gap between these players just seem particularly thin? You know, you look at the statistics, which is which helped me inform my decisions on who I place tier one, tier two, tier three. Right now, there are only eight women who rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. And I think some of the names are going to be pretty puzzling to all of you listeners. Now, I think all of us would put Wimbledon finalist Own Jabour as a tier two player. You know, I believe Jabour has the most wins of any player since the start of the 2021 season on the WTA Tour, just made her first Grand Slam final in Wimbledon. And even though she lost that final for her to make the final in Wimbledon, for her to win a 1,000 level event on the clay courts, despite losing first round at Roland Garros, for her to just be as competitive as she is across surfaces, I think she's a pretty definitive tier two. I mean, she's number two in the world. She's uh, two in the points race, excuse me. She's currently number five in the rankings. She is one of the eight women to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. In fact, she's one of five women to rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage. I think we throw Jabour in the mix. I think we'd throw a healthy Paula Bedosa, and she just hasn't been that healthy this season, but obviously we saw her win Indian Wells last year, saw her make quarterfinals of, or, you know, second weeks of slams on multiple surfaces. She's another one of the eight top, but she's just top 25 in both hold and break percentage. I would probably throw her in tier two. The only other player, according to the stats, and I mentioned Simona Halep, who's hovered in and out, but the only other definitive tier two player in my mind has probably been Amanda Anisimova. Anisimova, one of the five women to rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage. Anisimova right now 16th in the points race, but again, one of the only five to rank top 10 in both hold, uh, top 20, excuse me, both hold and break percentage. And you look at Tennis Abstract's yearly ELO ratings, which again, measure who you beat, how you beat them, as opposed to what round of a tournament you beat them. And you look Amanda Nisimova 10th in overall ELO ratings. You look at just her 2021 specific results, Amanda Nisimova all the way up to number five in the yearly ELO ratings for, if you remove Ashley Barty from that list, I test wise that makes sense. She's had the weapons. She has the serve. She has the you know has the wins under her belt, beating Osaka, beating Benchich, and doing all of the you know one of th- two players to make round four in singles at all three slams we've seen played this year. I think Jabour. I think Anisimova. I think Bedosa are your definitive tier two players. Now I would put Simona Halep on that list on the women's side, but I can already hear David Kane in the back of my mind screaming at me why that's not the case. I mean, certainly Elena Rabakina belongs in tier two because she's the number two server on the WTA tour. And even though that break percentage is a little bit lower because of how erratic erratic she is as a returner, as we just saw at Wimbledon, her ceiling is good enough to win a Grand Slam. So I think she probably belongs on tier two, even if the statistics wouldn't say as much. Just for the record, your eight players to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. The top 10 club, Sviantek and Halep. Top 15, Marketa Vondrusova, who's disqualified from this conversation because of how injured she's been, has only played 15 matches this year. You know, Jabour, Anisimova, you're only two members of the top 20 club. I think they're both tier two players this season. Top 25 is Alexandrova, who floats between tiers three and four. We can delineate between tier four a little bit later. Paula Bedosa, who I've already referred to. And then the always erratic Elena Ostapenko, who somehow finds herself 25th in hold percentage this season. The, you know, the grass court season was very kind statistically to her serve. I think the best version of Elena Ostapenko is unequivocally a tier two player, maybe even a tier one player in her, you know, in, in a vacuum in any given match if she plays her best. But We just don't see that best frequently enough. So, again, in between Tier 2 and Tier 3, it'd be a good debate for her. Certainly some other players, you know, Bencic, Pegula, Goff, I think have been three of the most consistent players we've seen week in, week out, surface in, surface out on the WTA Tour. If you want to throw Beatrice Haddad-Maya into that list, I'll have the conversation with you as well. Kasatkina has you know, before this week where she lost first round has been relatively consistent as well. But I mean, right now, here would be your eight women in the WTA Tour finals. Sviantek, Jabour, 
Goff and Pagula, who, by the way, rank third and fourth right now on the on the uh, in the points race on the WTA tour, perhaps in, indicative of those no Wimbledon points more than anything else. Goff three, Pagula four, Sakari five. Fine. I, I think she has to be in tier two just by virtue of she's going to make the quarterfinals of ninety six percent of the tournaments she plays and. Yeah, that, that's what a Tier 2 player does. They beat who they're supposed to beat. Now, if you're Tier 1, you beat who you're not supposed to beat from time to time as well. Sakari's had a little bit more difficulty beating players her level this season. But bottom of Tier 2, I think Maria Sakari does belong in that conversation, even if the stats don't quite say so this year. She's number 5 in the points race. The aforementioned Kasakina 6, Bedosa 7, Benchich 8. You then got Kudermatova 9. Collins, Keys on the base on the back of really their Januaries 10 and 11 respectfully. Halep uh, 12th. Ostapenko 13. Sabalenka 14. Kontave 15. Anisimova 16. Rabakina 19th because she didn't get any points in Wimbledon. But yeah, again, Shviantek, Jabor, Golf, Pagula, Sakari, Kasakina, Bedosa, Benchich. I mean, who else belongs in that year-end finals field right now? on the WTA side. No one definitively, and by the way, there's a reason there's only, you know, 360 points separating 8th place Belinda Bencic and 16th place Amanda Nisimova. The gap between who's been good and who hasn't this season on the WTA Tour has been very, very thin. And, you know, again, that's why I wanted to look at the statistics, offer you all this update, because that race for the year-end finals is going to be electric throughout this North American hardcourt summer. Absolutely something to look forward to. Quickly to end things, top 10, 15, 20, 25 club points race update on the men's side. You've got 11 men who rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. No man ranking top 10 in both hold and break percentage this season. Now, of course, one has to imagine if Novak Djokovic was able to play a full schedule from the start of the season, get the warm-up events, and play the Australian Open where he's had so much success throughout the course of his career. Djokovic, by the way, in a limited sample size, is one of just three men to rank top 15 in both hold and break percentage this season. You know, again, that he's not in top 10, it's because of how slow he started the season and it killed his statistics to lose to Yuri Vesely or whatever it was uh, early in the year. Uh, but you look, again, no top 10 players. Rafa not in that category as well. But I think the names make a ton of sense. And I think you look at the three guys who are top 15 in hold and break percentage, Alcaraz, Djokovic, Zverev. You may say, how is Zverev up there? Go watch him when he serves well and go watch his backhand return of serve makes a ton of sense. The results have gotten better. Obviously, destroyed his ankle at the French Open, but you can make a case he was going to beat Rafa. I'm not saying it's going to be a good case, but you can make he played Rafa as competitively as any player at the 2022 French Open. That doesn't mean it was a good match. That doesn't mean either of them played their best tennis, but he played him as physically, he played him as close as anyone in the draw. And so, again, after an embarrassing disaster of a start to the season that had just as many problems off the court as it did on it. And of course, Zverev continues to face significant allegations of physical abuse from a former spouse that remain unaddressed by the ATP tour. That said, statistically, it does make sense that he's in the top 15 club. And obviously, it makes sense for Carlos Alcaraz, who's winning like 90% of his matches this season. Top 20 club's interesting. Nadal, probably belongs in that top 15 club. If the top 15 club was Alcaraz, Djokovic, Zverev, Nadal, I think I could stop this podcast there. And it would just make sense to everyone what I'm saying. But Nadal, top 20, it's that hold percentage that dips a bit for him. You know, also in the top 20 club, Indian Wells champion Taylor Fritz, who has been one of the breakout stars of the 2020 season and winning Indian Wells first quarterfinal at a slam. I think we've all seen the progression there. Makes sense that he's on this list. Gael Monfils is your Marketa Vandrusova equivalent in that when we've seen him, he's been great. He's just been very injured this season, so I'm going to disqualify him now. And then RBA, who is like the best of the lost generation right now. If I ask you, Dimitrov, RBA, Karenio Busta, or anyone else born from, you know, excluding Dominic Team, born from 1990 to 1994. Well, I guess RBA was born in 1988. But the point being, you know, those other guys, the the lost gen, as they like to be referred to. RBA is the guy. Even though he's a little older than that group, he's the best of the rest right now. And you look for RBA, who right now, you know, is 12th 
in the yearly ELO ratings. He's uh, currently in the points race a little bit lower uh, than, in my opinion, he probably should be. RBA right now in the points race, currently sitting at 18th. He's 19th, I believe. Yes, currently 20th, excuse me, in the live rankings. I mean, top 20 club feels about right. He's lost just one first match this season. It came to Dominic Team 7-6 in the third, I believe, last week. He's, you know, again, beating everyone he's supposed to beat. Two titles for him this season, top 20 in both hold and break percentage makes sense. 25 is interesting. Medvedev, who obviously has been injured at various points of this season, had a really rough stretch from February to his injury, I suppose, heading into the French Open, but has slowly but surely gotten his break percentage back to where it needs to be. Would shock me if by the end of the North American hardcore stretch, he's not in the top 20, top 15 club. Yannick Sinner, another one of those guys in the top 25 club. Again, he doesn't have a single bad loss on his resume this season, has been sneakily excellent, has made a mini leap here this year. He belongs on that list. Then two of your breakout stars of the 2022 season, your Anisimova and Alexandrova equivalents, or from last season, if you listeners remember, uh, constantly Ilya Ivashka, who was a 250 king. You know, he was always in this club. Benjamin Bonzi, who just like, Pencil him into round of 16s, quarterfinals at the ATP Tour level events. Now, if he plays a challenger, he's probably going to win it. The Frenchman uh, has been so, so solid, 26 years old, clearly amidst the prime of his career. And then Mimir Kesmenovic, who was the breakout star of the first three months of the season and has done a pretty good job sustaining his level ever since. I think those 11 guys make sense. Again, a Cressy, a Berrettini, a Tsitsipas, with how erratic they are on the return of serve, it's going to be more difficult for any of them to be top 25 club guys despite their pronounced amounts of success this season. You know, Andre Rublev, Cam Nori would be top 27 club members if you wanted to get funky with the rules, but I decided to stick to the rules here today. You know, the only outlier statistically I really looked, you know, Brandon Nakashima right now is killing it from a hold percentage perspective. Brandon Nakashima trails, let's see, Alcaraz is 11th, Shapo 12th, Fritz 13th, Djokovic 14th, Zirev 15th. Nakashima ranks 16th in hold percentage amongst top 50 players on the ATP Tour. Was that the profile we had for Brandon Nakashima over these past three seasons? Absolutely not a testament to the growth he's we've seen from him as a server. And again, if you want to hear more about that growth, go check out our Cracked Interviews podcast feed right now, by the way, the points race for the ATP Tour Finals. Nadal 1, Tsitsipas 2, Alcaraz 3, Rude 4, Zverev 5, Medvedev 6, Rublev 7, FAA 8. Now, just behind them, Taylor Fritz 9th, Novak Djokovic 10th. Of course, Novak Djokovic by winning Wimbledon. It's in the rule book. Go check, you know, the, uh, what's that called? When you, I forget, I'm I'm blanking on the term right now, but, you know, go check the, uh, go check the rule book. And there's a rule that says, Novak, you know, if you're a Grand Slam champion, even if you're not, don't finish top eight in the points race, Grand Slam champions still have the ability to be entered into the year end finals. Again, I I wish I knew the rule better. The point is, I believe right now, Novak Djokovic would be playing the year-end finals. So, you know, yes, he's 10th, but technically he'd be top eight. FAA would be the next guy out, followed by Taylor Fritz. FAA right now, uh, currently 50 points behind seventh place Andre Rublev. So plenty to play for in the North American hardcore stretch. But with all that said, just some random Wednesday observations for all of you Cracked Rackets fans. Again, we will be back later today, joined by tennis points Nate Walrith to break down all the action happening this week on the ATP and WTA Tour. Of course, a shout out as well, always to super producer Daniel Westoff for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out. Allows me to do things like spend 50 minutes recording some of my observations on tour. Of course, a shout out as always to our friends at Tennis Point for their support of this podcast as well. Tennis-point.com promo code is CR15. With all of that said, again, Another mini break podcast coming later today. We'll have David Gertler to break down all things North American Challenger Tour coming up later this week as well. All of that content available on our website, CrackedRackets.com. But with that in mind, for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.